0: Welcome today. Glad that you're joining us. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. If you've been with us over this last number of weeks, you know we've been in this series called How to Be Rich. Uh, And today is the last of that series, of a four week series. And we started three weeks ago, four weeks ago, uh, talking about the fact that we indeed are rich. We always think that rich is like the person down the street or, or the person who has a way more than us. But it turns out that when we looked at it carefully, we found that if we live in this country, the vast majority of us are, in fact, rich. Which then led to this question. Okay, if we are rich, how do we be rich? How do we be good at being rich? So then the next week, we talked about... The fact that money in itself is not a bad thing, but that it often comes with these, that almost always it does come with these side effects, these these negative side effects. The Apostle Paul points them out to us in the letter to uh, his protege Timothy. He says, one of the dangers of money is that it can cause us to become arrogant, and the other danger is it can cause our hope to migrate to our money, which is never a stable or a firm foundation for our hope to be on. So we talked about that and the need to to push against that natural pull that money has in our life, to to find an antidote to that. And that's what Pastor Dan talked about last week. The the, the antidote to becoming arrogant, the the antidote to putting our our trust and our hope in our money is, is found in generosity. It's found again in what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Timothy when he commands those of us who are rich in this present age, meaning us, he commands us to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And we talked about just the the value of being generous and how that brings life into the world around us and brings life to us. So that was last week. And and now this week we come to the the final sort of topic that we want to address when it comes to to being rich. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in in a room with a group of people and someone comes up with a great idea. Is kind of a, it's kind of a different idea. It's kind of adventurous and fun and maybe a little bit risky, but filled with, with incredible potential. You know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a road trip, and everyone's like, oh, that sounds fun. We should do that. Or, or maybe it's a new business idea, and, and people get talking and saying, yeah, that, that sounds really great. You know, and there's this sort of this energy in the room, and, and people are sort of bouncing ideas, and there's enthusiasm. And then someone walks in the room who wasn't there, and they say, what's all the commotion about and when you begin to explain the idea and what it could be they just turn around and they just trash it they just say well here's all the reasons why it won't work and here's what here's what could go wrong with it and and it's just a dumb idea and and kind of by the time they're done talking they've just they've just they just put a wet blanket on everything they've sort of sucked the energy out of the whole thing and Everyone's kind of looking at their feet a little bit and saying, "Yeah, you know, maybe it was not such a great idea." And let's just go back to what we were doing what what we were doing before. And and you know when it comes to when it comes to being generous, when it comes to that idea, there it's the same idea. It's, it's, it's an idea that is full of, of potential and some risk, but also excitement and adventure and all this sort of good things. But there is just outside the door of this idea of generosity something else that is just kind of just waiting to walk into the room and kind of suck the energy out of it and, and just put a wet blanket over the whole thing. And that's something else, is this appetite. It's an appetite that we have within us that just wells up in, within us, an appetite for more stuff, more, more status, more security. And it's just this appetite that kind of grows in us. Justin, uh, Justin Grunwald says this about an appetite, about any appetite. He says this, appetites have only one word in their vocabulary, more. You know, the thing about an appetite is they, they can, it can never be fully satisfied, never can be fully f- fulfilled. They're, at best, they're satisfied temporarily. I mean, even, I mean, think about Thanksgiving dinner or the best steak dinner you've ever had. It, even that, it doesn't take long, and eventually you're rummaging through the pantry looking for a snack, right? That, that appetite just always wants more. Now, appetites aren't a bad thing. They're something that was created by God, but they've also been distorted by sin. And so because of that, we have to learn to say no to our appetites. We need to learn to control our appetites, because if we don't, they can cause us all kinds of grief and problems in our life. In fact, it also means that our appetites are a terrible filter for us when it comes to making decisions about all kinds of things in life. In fact, as you can imagine, social scientists have done an awful lot of studies about appetites, about what an appetite does in particular to your brain. And they found some interesting things. They found a number of things. First of all, they found that when an appetite sort of, you know, is stimulated in your brain, it results in something called impact bias. And and impact bias is this this thing within our brain that magnifies that particular appetite above all of our other appetites. And and it helps us, it causes us to overestimate how happy we will be if we can finally satisfy that appetite. This, for example, is why a good waiter or waitress, when you're done your meal at a restaurant, you're full and you're done, that's why if they're good, they'll actually not just give you a dessert menu, they'll bring a tray with the desserts on it. Or if they can't, they'll describe the desserts in such a way that you can just taste that dessert. Why? Because they stimulate that, that part of your brain that has this impact bias and says, even though I'm full, I'll be happier if I have that extra dessert. That's one of the effects of an appetite in our mind. Uh, the, the second thing that it does uh, when we stimulate an appetite, the second thing it causes our brain to do is become so focused on one bit of information or one idea that everything else is blurred or or subdued compared to that idea. That's why you can go to a car dealership and look at a car and drive out of that dealership thinking there is no other car that would ever work for me except that one. Because this thing has gone on in your mind that says, that one is the one that I have to have. And then the third thing that they found about appetites is that uh, uh, when an appetite is stimulated in your brain, it over-exaggerates the consequences of not having that appetite satisfied. And the best place to see this is if you have teenagers, or if you don't, remember back to when you were a teenager. right? I mean, you hear this, mom, if I don't have that thing, I'm going to what? I'm going to die, right? I mean, that, it's serious. Or if, if you make me wear this to school, I will never ever get a date again in my life, right? I mean, this is what appetites do to us. They they cause us to over-exaggerate the consequences, which means that our appetites are very powerful in our lives. And if we're not aware of the the power of the appetites in our lives, that causes problems. And if we're not aware of, of the appetite in our life for more stuff, and more status, and more security in our life, then that can come into our life, come into that room when we're talking about generosity, and literally suck the the energy out of that, put a wet blanket on on our desire to be generous. And we think in the end, well, maybe we should just forget it. Let's just go back to doing things the way we always did it before. The Apostle Paul, again, in his letter to Timothy, literally a few verses between, before the ones that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, addresses this whole area of how to deal with this appetite for more stuff in our lives. And this is, this is what he writes, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, he writes this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, contentment, that's, that, that's a concept that we don't hear very much about these days. What we hear about, or at least what we experience for the most part in our life, is discontentment. In fact, uh, uh, in an article titled, Why the Devil Takes Visa, a Christian response to the triumph of consumerism, a social commentator, Rodney Clapp, quotes a retail analyst from the 1950s. What, what I'm about to read you is from the 1950s. Here's what that retail analyst wrote. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. That's from the 1950s. And do do you hear the kind of language that he uses there? The goal that they had back then that they've been working on to this day is to take the idea of buying and the use of goods and turn it into rituals, into like patterns of worship that endear in us love and loyalties in our lives. And and he says the the goal is to to make it so that when we buy things that we think that will satisfy the spiritual desires in our life and the ego desires, it'll make us feel like we're important and valuable by the kind of stuff that we have. That's the goal of, of the consumer world that we're living in. The problem, of course, is that 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 kind of stuff never actually does what they promise it to. And this is just ancient wisdom. This is wisdom going back centuries. You know, the great thinker and writer uh, Thomas Aquinas, he wrote back in the Middle Ages, and he, he said this, the problem with trying to find the satisfaction of your spiritual hunger in things is that once you get them, once you've had them for a while, he says, you will despise them. He says, why? because you'll realize that in the end, they don't fill that longing, that, that spiritual hunger in your life. And so you'll want something else. You'll move on to the next thing. It just always is that way. The ancient writer of Ecclesiastes put it more bluntly. Here's what he says. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. They're saying what what we know is that the appetite for money and for more will never be satisfied. Plus, always having more means more work. And one of the guys who first pointed this out was a 6th century Roman philosopher named uh, Bothesius. And he pointed this out, that that the more stuff you have, the more money you have, the more time and energy and, and resources it takes to care for that. So if you have a big house, I mean, the bigger the house you need, They have the the more furniture you need. And the more furniture and stuff you have, the the more time it takes to clean it and to repair it and and to care for it. And what should, in your mind, bring you freedom and and freedom from anxiety and, and, and that type of thing instead... Instead, it requires more time from your life and more energy. And once you've got all that stuff, then you've got to update it and you've got to accessorize it until you've got so much stuff that you're worried that someone's going to take it. So you've got to get a security system. And it just goes on and on. It causes more work in our lives. You see, there is great value in contentment. But the Apostle Paul goes on to say that that, that not only that, but if you want true gain, if you want real gain, you need to combine contentment with godliness. Now, here's why he says you need godliness, too, because there is beneath that appetite for more stuff. There is these two passions, these two deep desires that that if you don't have God in your life, you, you just have no way of sort of dealing with. The first, the first passion, the first desire under, underlying all of this is fear. If you live in fear that, that the food you're about to eat is the last food you'll ever eat, boy, then you're just driven to eat so much more. If you live in fear that, that, that it, you're not getting all the experiences in life, all the meaning in life that you can, that others are, then you're driven to always try to get more experiences. If you live in fear that you will never have enough to be secure... You always need just a little more to be secure. Then you will always be driven with the need to have more and more stuff. And what the Apostle Paul points out is that when you have godliness, when you trust in God in your life, then that takes away that fear. Then the confidence that you need that there will be enough food, that there will be deep meaning in your life, that there will be all the needs that you have comes not because you get more, but because your confidence is in God. That's why in a number of places in the Bible, when it talks about contentment, it ties it to this idea of not being afraid. For instance, Jesus, he said this, do not be afraid, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Jesus don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You you can be generous. You can live this way. You can give because because I'm caring for you, because God is caring for you in all of this. And later, the writer of Hebrews says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Again, there's this idea. I don't have to fear that I won't have enough because God is caring for me. So I can be content with the things that I have. That's the first, the first passion is that fear that, that godliness drives out. But then the second one, and, and kind of on the opposite extreme of the spectrum, is the passion for our own glory and our own power. You see, because behind the desire to have more money, more stuff, is this desire for us to be like the, the owners of, of this stuff, the, the masters of our universe, to be kind of in control of it and to have it give glory to us. In a sense, you know, at the deepest level, our desire is to see ourselves as, as gods, as as the masters of the world around us. And here again, when we acknowledge that that God is the supreme sovereign over all the universe, when we acknowledge that He is the ruler in our lives and that we humbly and and willfully submit to Him, that we don't need that, that, that need to kind of be in control, to be God in our life, just it dissipates, it goes away and allows us again to find true contentment. You see, Godliness with contentment, that's great gain in our lives. And the opposite of that is great danger. And Paul goes on to warn about this next. Here's what he says in verse nine. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and in many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, there's that word desire again, appetites, right? Right. And he goes on to explain. He says this. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Good people, smart people, educated people, people like you and me. I mean, Paul, Paul warns this is a danger for us if we let our appetite for more money, for more stuff get out of control. He says, look, dude, this is what happens falling into temptation and a trap, being controlled by harmful habit-forming desires, plunging headfirst into destruction, wandering from the faith, and piercing ourselves with many griefs. That's what happens when that appetite gets out of control. I mean, I, I bet that you can think of people in your world that you've watched, whatever appetite it is that there is out of control in their life, and you've said, Man, can't they see? Don't they understand that if they don't begin to say no around whatever that appetite is, that it will bring destruction into their life? Why can't they see that? And yet the question for you and I is, can we see it in our own lives? C- can you see it in your life? Can I see it in my life? Can we see that sometimes this desire for more and more and more stuff, if we don't get it under control, that it can bring destruction into our own, own world? Paul warns Timothy of this very thing. This is what he says next. He says, But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. You hear the language he uses there? I mean, words like like flee and pursue and fight. It's about, you know, being intentional and aggressive and being generous. And that stuff just doesn't come naturally. Saying no to ourselves is not intuitive to us. You would think, I mean, you would think that the more we have, the less we would want. But that's not not how appetites work. The the, the way an appetite works is that the more you have, the more you want. You know, if you feed an appetite, it grows. Satisfying appetite doesn't diminish it, it expands it. If you want to diminish an appetite, you have to starve it. You know, I, I have a, I just have a really sweet tooth. I've always liked anything sweet. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, on a birthday after everyone's had their piece of cake and I've had my piece of cake, if there's just a little piece left over, I'll look and I'll say, well, don't want that to go to waste. Do you? I mean, I, I can help you with that. I just, I just love sweets. And I remember a number of years ago, uh, I worked with this, this wonderful lady, uh, and she came, and she told me one day, she told me that she'd given up all sugar, that she wasn't, uh, you know, having any sugar. And then she began to wax on about how sweet a cucumber tasted to her. Now, I really like this lady, but in my head, I was like, lady, I, I think you're crazy. I mean, when, when you start talking about how sweet a cucumber is, you clearly have, have gone too far when it comes to sugar. But then a couple of years later, I had to go off sugar uh, for a season in my life. And I remember the first couple of, of, of days of that. Man, I just craved sugar like crazy. I, I, I had a sixth sense. I could, I could know if there was something sweet on the other side of a wall. Everywhere I went, I just wanted it. But eventually, as I starved that that hunger, that appetite for sugar eventually began to die down. And, and eventually I could walk into a room where they were having birthday cake, and, well, I kind of missed it. It didn't drive me crazy. And then, and then one day, I mean, it happened to me. One day I found myself eating the most delicious, sweetest cucumber I'd ever had in my entire life. Now, these days I kind of, I'm back into having more sugar again, but, but I found that my appetite changed not not because I fed it, but by starving it. Instead of craving sugar, I found this sort of freedom from having to have sugar all the time. And I found in my world a new kind of sweetness, kind of sweetness I could even find in in cucumbers. This again, this again is the wisdom that the Apostle Paul gives to us when it comes to this appetite that we have for more and more and more stuff. He says, you've got to starve it. Here's, Here's what he says. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can't take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Just food and clothing, nothing else. That's the diet. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting we do that. If, if I did, I'd be a hypocrite. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying you should either. But, but you understand the, Paul, the point that Paul is driving at. If we want to develop contentment in our life, if we want to dampen that appetite in our life for more and more, part of it, most of it requires us starving that appetite. So the question is, how do we do that? How do you starve an appetite for more and more stuff in a culture where everywhere you turn, there are messages stoking discontent with what you have? How do we do that in a culture which has intentionally developed marketing strategies that, that, that make buying and consumption of goods a, a spiritual act, and tell us that that will fulfill our spiritual hunger. I mean, how do we learn to say no when technically we're able to say yes to so many things? Well, there are three ways. The first is awareness. You know, awareness can both both fuel discontent but if we use it right, it can also tame and dampen that discontent in our lives. It's all about what we're aware of. So for instance, you know, awareness can fuel our discontent. Newell and I, we love, we love going to Costco, but we kind of dread it. Because you know, even though we love it, we, we go we're intending to get about seven or eight things, but by the time we pull that buggy up to the car, the checkout, you know, area, it's packed with about 45 things. Things that we didn't even know existed, much less were needs, until we came there. I mean, I have in my garage a mop to clean the windows on the outside of my house. I had no idea it existed until I saw it in Costco. And in that moment, it went from a want to, I need this thing. I can't imagine how I lived without it. Of course, it's just in my garage, I've never used it yet. But in the moment, I knew that I needed it. The awareness of that kind of thing causes discontent. Now that wasn't always the case. I mean, you know, years ago, discontentment didn't play such a big role in our purchases. Years ago, people used to buy something new when the old one broke. Imagine that. I mean, people people would, you know, replace those things only when it broke, which is this crazy idea for us today. Today we don't replace things when they break. No, today we replace things when a newer model comes out. We don't we don't replace it, we upgrade the one that we already have. And when do we decide that we need to upgrade it? As soon as we learn that an upgrade is available. It's because it causes us to be discontent with a perfectly good model that we currently have. So see, awareness can cause a lot of discontent. But awareness can also tamper our appetite for more if we become aware of the right things. If you've ever taken a mission trip overseas to a third world country, it's amazing how when you see the needs of, that, of those people, when you come home, it, it kind of blunts your desire to fill your garage with more and more stuff. When we serve the people in our community who are in need or the, the people in our neighborhood or the people in our school who are in need, it has a tendency to help us become more aware of the blessings that we have and the needs of the people around us. And it causes that desire for more to kind of settle down. You know, when you look into the eyes of a kid who will get nothing at Christmas time unless you are generous and the people around you are generous to him, again, it, it just changes your awareness of what it is. And it causes you to say, yeah, of course, we've got money to help with that. Right? Now, that, that change in awareness is not, should never be driven by guilt. That's never the goal. Rather, it's so that we become good stewards of the resources that God has given us. So how do we change that awareness? How do we make that shift? Well, one way is to volunteer. Uh, One way is to to find a place in our community, in your neighborhood, in our city, where you just come along and and serve the needs in this city. It'll change your world. I was just talking to someone the other day who's serving at The Hub, which is this uh, resource for the homeless in our community. The guy said to me, he says, I've been serving there for a while now. It has utterly transformed the way that I see the homeless people in our city because he has relationships with them and he's serving them. And and it just causes a generous spirit in him because he has built that kind of one-on-one relationship with them. One of the things you should consider doing is volunteering. And if you're not volunteering, at least keep your ear to the ground in your conversations, when you're chatting with your neighbors, when you're, you know, running into the people in your world, what are the needs that are out there? And then begin to find ways to serve those needs. It'll blunt that, that, that appetite in you for more and more for yourself. It's the first way. Awareness is the first way that we can starve that appetite for more. The, the second way that we can Blunt that appetite for more is to simply uh, to actively disconnect and uncouple the the pipeline of discontentment that flows into your world and mine. So, for instance, stop going to the mall. Maybe maybe you need to cancel some of the some of the uh, magazine subscriptions that you're getting. And you know when the when the app says, "Hey, would you please?" Give us more information about yourself so that we can customize the ads for you so that we can be more helpful for you. You shouldn't do that. If you're a young, a young lady, if you're 25 years old, you want the algorithms to think that you're a 60-year-old man so they send you commercials for chainsaws and ride-on mowers because then you're not tempted to buy that kind of stuff. right? I mean, there is some Instagram accounts that you should stop following, some Pinterest accounts that you should erase from your phone. Because all of those things flow into your world and all that they cause you is to be discontent with the things that God has so graciously given you in your life. That's the second thing, second way. And finally, the third way is to remember that in the end, you don't ultimately own all the stuff that you have. Ultimately, everything that you own is a gift from God. It's His. And and you're just stewarding the stuff that He has given you to own. Or, or, or to, to care for. Uh, Augustine, the, the great church father, uh, he, he explains this. He says that our, our desire to privatize, to possess, to, to master, to own things that we are just a steward of, he says that's not only idolatry, it's just simply a fantasy. It's just not based in reality. C.S. Lewis, he makes the same point in his, uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read it. If you haven't, it's a fantastic book. Uh, The Screwtape Letters is a fictional series of letters written from a senior demon to a junior demon teaching him how to mislead people in this world. And um, when it comes to the whole area of possessions, this is what the senior demon writes to his protege. He says this, The sense of ownership is always to be encouraged in humans. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership that sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. They act as if they were a royal royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake in a titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors who comes to fancy that he really does own the cities, the forests, and the corn in the way he owns the building blocks on the nursery floor. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is saying is this, to think that somehow we actually own all of the stuff that we have, that it isn't just God's and that we're his stewards, is the same as a four-year-old child of a king who thinks that just because the, the king has called him prince and put him sort of over this great province, that he owns and controls that province like he owns the, the toy blocks in his nursery floor. It's just, not, it's just not reality. See, when we remember that God is the owner of it all, that everything that we have is only because of his gracious generosity in his life and that we are to steward it wisely and well, then that can again starve that appetite in us that says, I have to have more. I have to own more stuff. Instead, instead it frees us up to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. It it frees us up to be good at being rich. See, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. The question is, what do you need to do today to begin to starve that, that appetite in your life? You know, some of you, some of you need to decide that you are going to find some place to serve, some place to volunteer, maybe here at the church, but, but, it, but just as likely in one of the great organizations in our city that's already serving the needs that are out there. And you're going to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve the needy in this city because it's going to remind me of the goodness of God in my life. And it's going to blunt that thing in my world that says, I have to have more. And others of you, others of you this afternoon, you need to go home and take your phone out. And you need to unfollow all kinds of things that are just pipelines of discontent in your world. You just need to look and say, I don't need that anymore. I don't need to see that. I don't need to watch that. And you need to to remove that pipeline of discontent in your life. And some of you, You just need to go home and wander around your beautiful house. You just need to look at your stuff in your garage and in your backyard and your house and just say, look at God's grace. Look at his goodness to us. Look how generous he's been. He owns it all. And look how gracious he's been to, to allow us to steward it. And so we commit again that we're going to use the resources and the gifts and the kindness of God in our life to be generous to the needs of so many people around us. You see, it's not easy to be good at being rich. It's hard to do. But when we follow God's design for how to be rich, then we take hold of that life, which is truly life. Then we end up living life in the fullness that God always intended for it to be. And so may God grant you, may he grant me, may he grant us together the courage and the wisdom to know how to be good at being rich. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. God, we come to you again this day as people who have the privilege to live in this country with all kinds of riches, with wealth beyond imagined for most of the people in this world. And yet, God, in spite of that, there's this thing in us that just longs for more stuff, more money, more status, more... You know, more security, and God would you would you help us to find contentment with godliness? Would you help us to find the great gain of knowing that, that more is not actually more, that contentment is more? God would you help us to have the courage to blunt those things, to, to starve that appetite in us? God so that we would take hold of this life, so that we would live the, the kind of life that truly is fulfilling and meaningful? and joyful. God, so that we would be good at being rich. Because in your grace, that's what you've made us. You've made us rich. So God, grant us the courage and the strength to do that. Please help us as we follow after you in this area of our life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.